So I'm, I'm not preaching a sermon. Um, this is a testimony. And uh, I think those songs that I chose today are quite nostalgic. Um, but, you know, they're the old golden oldies, aren't they? Um, and yet to remember what God has done in our lives is so important. Um, I'm always reminded that um, when we commit our lives to Christ, we are new creations. The old is gone and the new is here. But <laughs> my story really is about how, yes, the new did come, but I think my whole life so far has been throwing off the old. I don't know about you. Um, I wish I could have been changed in that moment as I committed to Christ into this person that God meant me to be. But I do know that he is making me as I live. It's a process. You know, heaven is growing bigger in me and I am growing bigger in God. I have to say, I think I'd much rather be me now, age 61, with, you know, the beginnings of wrinkles and aches and pains than the teenage me um, with that, you know, young, strong body that, but no God within me, no heaven within me. I'm so thankful for what God has given me. So where did it all begin? So for me, I was born in 1961. I am 61. I was born in Birmingham, so I'm a Midlander. And I was born the fifth of six children in a Roman Catholic family. And they were a good Roman Catholic family. And I had a very happy upbringing. You know, I think it was rough and tumble. Six children is a lot. Um, there were frustrations being number five. It was Martin sitting at the back, Martin Schultz, who said, Ruth, I can tell you why you have tantrums. It's because you must have been uh, the youngest of a large family. <laughs> I said, you're right, <laughs> Dr. Spock. <laughs> so, so there were frustrations, and I, I am very aware that what goes on in your in your youth, you can actually act out in your adulthood. And I'm still trying to throw off frustrations. I don't throw tantrums very often now, but I'm, I'm not yet there. Um, and although we were good Catholics, I was quite muddled, quite muddled. I thought that God was always angry. Um, I thought that... Um, <laughs> I just thought I was very simple. I thought I was good enough for heaven, but I didn't think I was good enough for God. You know, we said our prayers. We went to church. I went to church school. I had a lovely um, children's Bible, which I loved flicking through. I loved the stories of the Bible. But I didn't think that God was anywhere close to me. I thought he was way, way off. So I, I, I was lost, really. As, as to the cross didn't make any sense. As to the resurrection, didn't think about it, just didn't really come into. I don't remember them talking about it. But, um, perhaps a little bit, but not. I just don't remember. I just don't remember what it meant. It didn't mean anything. So 
in the middle of that muddle. Isn't God gracious? I was so young, eight years old, and God spoke to me, and I didn't know it was him. And I was all alone in my bedroom, and I did not hear a voice. It was not a voice in my head. It was not a voice outside of me in the room, but it was a very strong sense of the word, one day you will receive power. And I thought, oh, that's nice. I'll look forward to that. And then thought nothing more of it. <laughs> and it's only now in retrospect I think, oh, Lord, you knew how powerless I felt as a child in that big family. And you gave me a promise. And I didn't have the nout to be able to act on or even say, who is that speaking to me? <laughs> I didn't. I just didn't. There was no one there. I didn't think it was God. And I certainly didn't think I could answer it. I'll tell you something, though. I knew those words were totally true and totally to be trusted. My parents left the Roman Catholic Church when I was 10 years old. Complicated reasons. They were socialists, and in the end, I think their socialism became more important than their belief in a God, and they started to teach us children that Jesus was just a good man. So I had a few years without church, but I did go to a grammar school, and in the grammar school, they had assemblies, and they were Christian-based in those days. I'm not sure they are um, and age 13, I joined a Christian youth club. So my older brother, Johnny, he was two years older than me. His maths teacher was married to John Pritchard, the curate at St. Martin's in the ballroom. He later went on to become Bishop of Oxford. And, um, and I joined him two years after he joined. And it was a lovely place to be. I, we did have visiting speakers, but to be honest, it was much more about socialising, and um, just somewhere to go, and it was good fun. And I can't honestly say that the Christian teaching had a great deal of impact on me that I can think of, apart from one thing. From my frustration as a childhood, I was quite an angry person, and I could be unkind, and my conscience started to speak to me. Now, I think conscience is a voice from God. And I decided I would start a DIY project on myself, self-improvement. And so I started to be kinder to people. And it was lovely because people started to say, oh, you're much nicer now than you used to be. And I even got elected to be a head girl. I couldn't be head girl because I wasn't, I didn't know how to revise, failed all my exams, and they just they didn't let me. They thought I needed to concentrate on my studies. But, but it was lovely to have that support. When I was 15, my lovely brother, Johnny, suddenly died. He was killed. And uh, he went off to a party. And at 3 o'clock in the morning, he borrowed um, a motorbike, a friend's motorbike. And we think that the driver who pulled out in front of him just wasn't expecting anybody to be there at 3 o'clock in the morning. He had to swerve behind, mounted the pavement, hit a lamppost, instant death. I've done grief without God. I've done grief with God, and I know what I prefer. And that was a hard time. And I think part of me reacted against it. And I, I think I became quite a difficult teenager then, and I smoked, 
and I drank, and boys were the be-all and end-all, nothing else, until one Friday night at our Christian youth club, we had the vicar of uh, St. John's Harborn come and talk to us, and he challenged us, and he said, what makes you think that you're good enough to get into heaven? Now, I didn't know I believed in God at that point, but I suddenly thought, oh, I've always thought I'll go to heaven. I thought I was good enough for heaven, not good enough for God, but good enough for heaven. So that played on my mind quite a lot. And um, I was very blessed to have a friend called Grace at school. She and I loved rock climbing. And our geography teacher uh, really enjoyed taking us out to the Derbyshire Dales. Was it the Dar- well, it was Derbyshire, anyway. And uh, off we would go rock climbing every Wednesday afternoon. And this one particular Wednesday, and I, I think I know the date, I think it was the 24th of May, 1978. I know I was 17, I know it was um, exam time, because the lads weren't able to come with us, they were all sitting their exams. They were in the um, O-level year, and Grace and I were in lower six. And I think it was the same day that Ray made his commitment to Christ, 24th of May, 1978. So I, I like those kind of you know, God loves those lovely coincidences, God coincidences. On our way back from rock climbing, we had lots of time to talk. And Grace happened to say um, that she was going on holiday. And I said, oh, where are you going? She said, oh, we're going on this Christian holiday um, to this Christian camp. And I said, oh, no, who on earth would think of going to such a thing like that? My, my sister, my big sister was in... Um, University, and she said, oh, yeah, we call the Christians crimpoline people. So I thought, why would you want to go on a crimpoline holiday? Um, Anyway, dear Grace, daughter of a Pentecostal minister, she did the stuff, and I do not know what she said, but it was like that voice back when I was eight years old. Whatever she said, I knew was true. And, you know, I could feel an inner spiritual shift inside of me shifting from untruth to truth. And I just knew, I just knew it was true. That's all I can say. She said, do you want to pray the prayer? I said, I'll do it when I get home. Always worrying. She said the next morning, did you pray the prayer? Yes, I did. So there I was, a newborn Christian. Did I notice much difference? No, because I'd made the commitment. I still didn't understand what the cross had done. And I certainly wasn't filled with the Holy Spirit. But, 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 when I made that commitment, I know, I know that Jesus put his foot in the door. Makes me want to cry because I know he was working in me. Because shortly afterwards, um, so I was 18, I wanted to be a nurse. Um, Miraculously, having been turned down in lots of uh, Birmingham hospitals, I was accepted at St. Bartholomew's in London. And so off I went from Birmingham to the Big Smoke, which is not something I thought I wanted to do, but it was all in God's plan. And while I was there, you know, you're thrown on your... Well, actually, I was blessed because I was thrown in with very good Christian friends, and they were very supportive. And um, it was in that first year of being a student nurse, which is quite stressful, you know, you're looking after very sick people. They just threw you into it then. You know, you, you were part of the team. You just did the work. 
So you saw life with the lid off, as Miss Collier, the director of nursing, said. Um, and in the middle of that, I was called to become an intercessor and a healer. I did not know that I was called at that point. All I knew was that my brothers, the brother who died in the motorbike accident, his friend Manassi Aspor had an accident on a bicycle and ended up in ITU in Birmingham. And I just thought, well, I've been reading my Bible, you see? So something was happening. I've been reading my Bible. And I read about the widow who kept knocking on the door of the judge until she got justice. I thought, that's what I've got to do. It says in the Bible, oh, that's what I've got to do. I just, Holy Spirit taught me that. You know, we are taught by the Lord. And so I prayed faithfully. I didn't stop praying. I, I was not filled with the Holy Spirit, but I prayed with fervor. And I can tell you now that Manasseh is alive and well, married, and we spoke last year. Um, so, so God answered my prayers. He is so faithful. Even, even in my youth, in my, I, was, I felt really I was an embryo Christian. I didn't know that then. That's how I described myself then, because in a sense, I wasn't fully born. I just didn't know who I was and what Christ had done. So... It's hard being a Christian without the Holy Spirit. And I tried to be good, and I don't think I was very good at it. I, you know that things were happening, and I think the prayer thing was good, and I went to church. But you do move around a lot as a student nurse. <laughs> and when we moved, it was just easier not to go to church. And I think that I just got tired of trying to, trying to be good. I just couldn't do it. I, I, couldn't, I couldn't be good enough. You can't be good enough. You will never be good enough without Christ. And although I had Christ, I still hadn't understood what he'd done. So, of course, I was good enough because of what Christ had done. I just hadn't started to walk in that truth. Yeah. So, the lovely thing was that that even though I wasn't going to church, and I don't think I was doing much of anything else, I don't think I was reading my Bible or praying at this point, so, um, but he kept tapping me on the shoulder, as is. I mean, not literally tapping me, but it felt like he was tapping me on the shoulder, and he kept saying, I'm still here, you know. <laughs> and in the end, I just thought, oh, all right. Yeah, I'll tell you what, I'll do a deal with you. If I pass my nursing exams, and just remember, this is the girl who got four E's at A-level, if I pass my nursing exams, I will go back to church. Well, <laughs> miraculously, even though I put someone in plaster of Paris and traction in one of my essay answers, <laughs> and I did know and love quite a lot about congestive cardiac failure. So I think that, that for some reason, it just clicked with me, and I wrote a very good answer, and I passed. So I was true to my word. And I went back to church. But it soon became very obvious, because when you do that, and it was a new church, it was um, St. Paul's Robert Adam Street, which is now um, associated with All Souls. And uh, it soon became obvious. I was living with Christian flatmates then in the West End, which was lovely, in the nursing home in the West End. Uh, it soon became obvious that I, that I was lost. I was still just as muddled as I was when I became a Christian. And um, 
My friend Frances, bless her heart, she said, what, what is it? What don't you understand? And I said, in John 15, it says that all those branches that aren't producing fruit are going to be thrown into the fire. And I said, I, I am one of those branches. I'm going to be thrown into the fire. She said, you're not. <laughs> and she took me through and she explained what Jesus did once and for all, took all my sins. I was spliced into the vine. I was part of it. I was part of him and he was part of me. So it made sense. And then she did something very sensible. She said, would you like to pray now? And I thought, if I kneel on my knees now and God is not there, critical moment, so I did kneel down, <laughs> and I didn't need to worry. I think God knew where I was at. He always provides what you need. It was as if light from heaven shone down on me, through me, out through my chest, and I could not stop crying for at least 48 hours. Every time I tried to say, say to someone, can I tell you what's happened to me? Then the tears would flow. And for a whole two weeks, I thought I would never be able to sin again. <laughs> two whole weeks. <laughs> yeah. Okay. So I realized what an enormous thing Jesus had done for me. And... I decided that I wanted to give my whole life to him. And I said, in a bit like Abraham with Isaac, I said, I give you my heart's desire. I won't get married and I won't have children. I just want to be a missionary. That's what I'm going to do. So I enlisted for midwifery in Bristol and I was going to go off to Africa. But, you know, just as God stayed Abraham's hand from sacrificing Isaac, he sent along someone. Now, I have been learning about pouring burning coals on people's heads, you know, if they were horrible to you, to actually just be really lovely back. And, um, and Graham was quite, he was quite a difficult guy. The first time I met him, um, you know, I was new to the church and I wanted to get people's names and addresses. And so I, I didn't really want to ask him, but he was standing with a group of other people. And so I said, um, so shall I take your name? He said, yeah, my name's Graham Jeffrey. That's J-E-F-F-E-R-Y. And I thought, oh dear. <laughs> Reluctantly wrote his name down. So I thought, I'm just going to be nice to him. Well, of course, he took it the wrong way and started to ask me out. I thought, no, I'm, I'm, I'm going to midwifery in Bristol and then I'm going to be a missionary, and I'm not getting married. So I never said no, apparently. I always made up excuses. I was too busy, always too busy. So he kept on until finally Francis, who was the John 15 lady who put me right on the branches, um, she said, Ruth, what harm is it going to do? Why don't you just go out with him? Just go the once. And, of course, that was it. That was it. And it was a good marriage, and... Um, we have two, two daughters, they're both in London. And the lovely thing is, is that he was also a Christian, of course, being at the church. And uh, we moved to South London and we joined a very active church. Um, St. Stephen's, uh, Clapham Park, now called St. Stephen's with St. Thomas's. And, um, and they're great, they are great. And, you know, we learned a lot. But, um, you know, Jesus never done. He's always on the move. 
And I got this impression, you know, we were, I was in a Bible study group, we were very um, uh, active, you know, we always went to church, so we were getting all this teaching, and I thought, you know, I said to Graham one day, you know, we're mediocre Christians, you know, something needs to change. And um, I think my youngest, my eldest one was two years old at the time, and I thought, okay, I know what I need to do. I need to have quiet times because I hadn't been having quiet times. I occasionally wrote a journal, um, which still have, always very useful. Um, and so my daughter was two, and she had a rest in the afternoon every day. And so I said to Lord, right, tomorrow I start my, my quiet times. So put, put her down for a rest, and I could not find my Bible. And I looked and I looked and I looked everywhere, and in the end said, look, Lord, I can't do a quiet time without the Bible. And instantly, he showed me a picture of where the Bible was. And it was a picture of the Bible on the floor behind the bathroom door. And I said, I have looked there. Silence. As if he was saying, mm-hmm. So I crept down the corridor and peered around the bathroom door. And there was the Bible. Exactly as he showed me on the floor, I, I, I guess... Joanna must have been playing with it and it had just got left there. But uh, I thought I'd look. Anyway, so that was a good time. Lots of good times at that church. We had um, 1989 Billy Graham came. Don't know whether you remember that. And we got into prayer triplets. Now, remember, I've been called as an intercessor already, praying for Manasseh. So I was well up for prayer triplets. In fact, I was praying with one of my first prayer triplets this morning at 5 o'clock for Izzy, who was also my first prayer triplet. Um, and um, prayer triplets were awesome because we didn't know it, but we were becoming prophetic. The pictures, of course, are prophetic. God speaking to us so that we have an idea of what he's saying so that we can then speak into situations and change them. And um, it was just a lovely time. Quite quickly, though, God said to us very clearly, I want you to stop praying in your prayer triplet, break up, and go make three new triplets. He's into multiplication. And those triplets have multiplied and multiplied. And have, I think, enriched that church hugely. They have 54 people from that church on WhatsApp praying yesterday, Sophie. I think that's awesome. The healing part. Well, there was a, um, a curate there, and his wife was very into healing. And she took us all off for training at St. Andrew's Chorley Wood. I can't remember who the minister was there. Mark Sibley. Mark Sibley. So he was there at the time. And so we were trained up in prayer ministry, and that was beautiful. And so we took it in turns to be on prayer minister duty. And um, gradually, as the years went by and the triplets continued, in the end, what was happening was that um, triplets would meet on a Wednesday, they'd receive words of knowledge for Sunday, they'd send their words of knowledge to the minister, and he would, if he felt right about them after weighing them, he would give them out. So I, I was saying yesterday at our School of Prophets, you know, um, it was so encouraging because the one, the one time I had, um, so a word of knowledge, for this particular word of knowledge, I had a, a brief pain in my left hand, so I told my prayer partners, I think I've got a word of knowledge, and it's about a left hand. But most of the pain is in the thumb. So I said, but it's mainly in the thumb. But I can't be there on Sunday. So if you don't mind, 
listing out for who who claims that word and tell me what happens. So Sunday went and um, and I asked the girls, you know, what happened about that word? And they said, oh, they didn't give it outright. They said it was just the left hand. And I thought, oh, no, it wasn't quite right. But they said, but don't worry, because the person who came forward to claim it, she said, I do have a problem with my left hand, but it's mainly in the thumb. So things were really happening. We went to a John Wimber conference. That was, um, and I listened to all of John Wimber's healing tapes. Oh, my goodness. I mean, that changed my life. Um, and <laughs> so we got prayer triplets, John Wimber. Oh, I was worship leading and loved worship. I think I learned to dance in worship at St. Stephen's. And, and that's been, you know, brought on more since coming to Norfolk and the School of Prophets. And I think the problem was, it's funny, isn't it, how God lets the wheat and the tares grow up together. It's, I think that when you um, have the Holy Spirit in you, you are a new creation, but it's all on the inside. You know, that's where heaven is growing. That's where all of heaven is growing. And as it grows, it pushes off those dead outer layers. So those layers are dead. They are dead. We know they're dead because it says, you know, our false selves die and our true selves, our true identities are hidden with Christ in God. Um, so I think it is a process of gradually shuffling off, almost Shakespearean, shuffling off that mortal coil um, as that heavenly light is growing inside of you. So I wasn't a great person, I don't think. I had lots of, you know, great worshipper, great prayer, but I was judgmental. I could be um, still very angry um, and... I think one of the things that we were pretty good at in that church was simply picking out the things in the Bible that we wanted to believe and leaving out the things that didn't quite suit us, you know. I don't think we meant to do it. I think it was done um, not deliberately, but just without understanding. Um, but I'm very sad about that because I would have liked to have known the things I know now, then. I think that would have been helpful. I, I don't want to hurt anybody, and I did hurt people, and I think that's sad, you know. And I think I did think that I had arrived. I did. I thought I'd arrived. I, I, I thought I knew everything. Um, Ray says it's, you know, there are positions in front of the cross, and you might start your journey um, to heaven might start outside the church and then you might be at the door and then come closer and closer and closer. And I think at that point, I was right in front of the cross. But I hadn't gone through it. I hadn't gone through it. Now, that might not make sense to some people, so I'm hoping to make sense of it now. Um, as a church, we read The Shack. don't know whether you've ever read it. Recommend it. For me, that began something about the knowledge of our hearts being like a garden. Didn't know it at the time, wasn't sure it was even the shack that did it, but something began, so I recommend that you read it. Next book, When Heaven Invades Earth. That was mind-blowing. So what Bill Johnson does is he takes the Lord's Prayer and you just think, oh, really, the Lord's Prayer, how boring. That's what I thought. And then he 
turns it upside down. He says, you know, you know that this Christian life is not about getting people into heaven, don't you? This is about getting heaven into people. And I couldn't understand it all at the time, but I knew something was changing. And I remember taking that book to Graham, my husband, and saying, Graham, I want you to read this book. And he said, ah, it's not my sort of thing. I said, Graham, if you don't read this book, you are not going to know where I am going because I knew I was starting on a new journey. Something different was happening. Thank God. The next thing that happened, February 2011, we knew that we needed to do more with healing. We had a healing service at church and... Um, I went to that healing service, and on the way back, I was on my own, driving in the dark, and that voice, very, very similar to the voice when I was eight, not a voice in my head, not an audible voice, but it said, stop drinking alcohol. Now, I was not an alcoholic, but Graham and I shared a bottle of wine every Friday, Saturday, and Sunday. And I didn't understand what God was saying at that point. And I went home and I said to Graham, God's told me not to drink alcohol and I'm not going to do it. I'm not going to do it. Not doing it. By the next morning, I thought, I'll do it for six weeks. So we had, and I'd done that before. I'd stopped drinking alcohol for six weeks, not necessarily in Lent. It was always when God asked me to and probably in preparation for that moment. And I did stop drinking. During that time, it was as if God was waiting to say something. It was as if he'd taken a big breath before saying something very big. Or it was a bit like the drained beach before a tsunami hit. And then the tsunami hit. And Graham died. We'd been skiing and he'd broken his leg. He had surgery. Four weeks later, clot in his leg, went to his lungs, and we were having supper one evening, me and the girls and Graham. And we were in the front room. He was in the back room finishing up some work. And we heard a clatter. And he collapsed. And by the time he got to the hospital, although they tried seven cycles of resuscitation, he didn't pull through. I don't remember anyone praying for him to be resurrected. I think we were just all in shock. And... Um, you know, I knew, I knew that God was with me. And that night, none of us wanted to be in bed on our own. All three of us shared the double bed the wrong way around because that was the only way three could fit in. And, um, do you know, two hours before Graham died, I'd sent off an email to all my friends saying, can you please support me because tomorrow I'm starting a new regime of quiet times. I'm going to get up at 5.45 and I know God is going to do something different. Well, you know, I never did that because I didn't have to wake up because I didn't go to sleep. We cried all night. And all night I said to the Lord, I refuse not to worship you. I refuse not to worship you. I couldn't, in all honesty, say I worship you because it felt too painful. But the double negatives do make a positive. And for me, it was a statement of faith. I knew he was there. 
I knew I wasn't on my own. And all that he did during those times of grief was so deep. There were times when I felt that my whole being had been split in three. You know, my body was on strike. I couldn't, I just couldn't eat. And every meal was a fight. I knew I had to put something in my stomach. But my body didn't want to do it. And my brain, you know, when someone dies, it's so busy. There's so many things to sort out. And um, it was, oh, never stopped. But my spirit, unencumbered by mind and body, it was absolutely soaring. Absolutely soaring. And I think that's what, what it's going to be like when we get to heaven. We're not going to be encumbered by this mortal mind and this mortal body. And in that time, I, God was teaching me huge and enormous things. I wrote letters um, to Graham. I found his love letters to me and I couldn't find my love letters to him. And so I thought, oh, the love letters from 1984, um, I'm going to reply to. And when I finished doing that, that took about six months, I said to the vicar, I don't know what to do. You know, I'll come to the end. He said, why don't you write to Jesus? So I thought, okay. So I got at my computer, I touch typed, and I started to write my letter, long, long letter, just telling him everything. And in the end, I thought, I would really like to hear from Jesus back. So I thought, okay, I, I, know, he's, I know he's got something to say. I'm going to close my eyes, and I'm just going to type and just let my fingers float over the keys. And so I did. Open my eyes, and I read what was written on the page. And the first lines were this. Dear Ruth, thank you for writing to me. I am talking to you all the time. That was life-changing. All the time. All the times I hadn't been listening. And I began to see that his words are like a river and that when we stand in the river, the words are floating by and what's he saying? Grasp hold of it. I found church very difficult. People would come up and say, don't cry, be strong. And so I thought, I don't want to leave church, so I'll, I'll, but I don't want to go in the mornings when I get these difficult comments. So I'll go in the evenings, and I found a vineyard church in Croydon. They were lovely. And I just sat there and cried until one day Hilary from the prayer ministry team came and she said, um, would you like prayer? And I said, no, I just want to cry. <laughs> and eventually I did tell them my story, but they didn't ask. It was very kind of them. They, they just let me do what I needed to do. In those quiet times that I started to have after the main grief was passed, I mean, I think the first year was really hard, those who know grief, and the grief of a husband, who, you know, you're one body, that you feel like your heart is being ripped in two. But I, I did start to have those 5.45 quiet times. I was working full-time, so it was a sacrifice. And in the winter, it would be in the dark with a heater on before the central heating was switched on. And I, I'd already, of course, had pictures. But I started to um, deepen those pictures and really surrender my imagination to God. And one of the first quiet times I had like that um, involved me imagining Jesus putting my arm around me. So, Jesus, I suggest you do it one day. 
sits in a chair and let Jesus put your arm on, armor on. He put the shoes of peace on. He put the belt of truth on, the breastplate of righteousness, the helmet of salvation. He put that shield. It wasn't just in front of me. My goodness, the shield is huge. It goes all the way around me. It's over me and under me. And the sword of the Spirit, my word. And you know, when Jesus puts your armor on, it does not fall off. <laughs> and I started to journal. And somebody had said to me, oh, you must read this book. It's called um, Keys to Hearing God's Voice. And um, I'll have to remember the, oh, Mark Verker. And, but I hadn't read it because I just thought I'm not interested. Not interested. <laughs> um, and, um, but, I, but I did start to write. And actually, that book is all about journaling and writing down what God is saying to you in the moment. So you might begin, so you might get an impression of God saying, my dear child, so you write down, my dear child, and then you have to wait for the next bit. And that was very good practice for me. And writing it down meant that when I read back what I'd written, it was amazing, like that letter. Thank you, I'm talking to you all the time. So I had huge revelations, and he started to teach me about the foundations of heaven. It wouldn't be every day, it would be here, there, and everywhere, and a morning might begin where I'd say, hello, Lord, what are we doing today? And he'd say, today, we're doing emerald. <laughs> okay, what do you want to tell me about emerald? And I would write it all down, use that a lot, um, to bring people to Christ. Uh, another story. And I learned that everything that God taught me, I, you know, I'd always thought it was quite a selfish faith. I thought that it was all for me. And then I learned that actually it was all to give away. So whatever God gives me is to give away. So that was huge. The garden of my heart started one day when I imagined Jesus standing in front of me. And um, he had a sword in his mouth, just like in Revelation. And I said, Jesus, if I want to kiss you, how can I do it when you have a sword in your mouth? Well, he didn't say anything. So I thought, okay, I'll just have to swallow the sword then. And when I did that, do you know what? Jesus follows on afterwards. And I suddenly realized he was, he'd had his foot in the door when I committed my life to him. He came in and filled me with the Holy Spirit. But this was an entirely new coming in. It was like I'd really thrown the door open. And I realized he, he was in a garden in my heart with a scythe, cutting things down. I said, what are you doing? He said, oh, I'm just weeding. <laughs> and so began a journey into the garden of my heart. And that, I'm writing a book about it. I met Ray. I, I thought that I'd been condemned to 30 years of solitary confinement after Graham died. But I met Ray. And in fact, in my notes, I'd, I'd written, you know, if I ever marry again, it's going to have to be a minister. Um, and we were both in the healing ministry. That was a criteria, very important. And I knew he needed to be filled with the Spirit. And when we first spoke on the phone, we didn't stop, stop speaking for three hours. And so it went on. And I think everybody ought to be married to a Baptist minister because <laughs> I said that to somebody in Scotland who was a Baptist minister and I think he got a bit worried. <laughs> because you have your personal mentor. Oh, I think everybody needs a personal mentor. Somebody who's a few steps ahead of you. 
because the things that I have learned over the last nine years since being married to Ray, let me tell you. First of all, not receiving rubbish. So when you get a bad diagnosis from your doctor, or somebody says, I have a word for you, and, um, and it's very ju judgmental, you can say, I don't receive that. I don't receive that. You don't have to receive it. Excellent. <laughs> Next thing. <laughs> the choice not to be angry. So my daughter was going through stuff at the time. She was quite angry on the phone. She stood in London. I'd moved to Norfolk. And she felt that I, it, was, it was right that I should know everything that she felt. And actually, that's part of self-control, isn't it? That you don't have to dump your stuff on somebody else. And so I was able to say, you know, it is your choice to be angry. But it is my choice not to be angry. And to begin with, she got more angry. And then she gave up. She gave up being angry with me. Excellent. Thankfulness. So I did not thank God for anything that was bad. I only thanked God for the good. And I read Mervyn Carruthers' book, which Ray had read, which his father-in-law had read, Prison to Praise, recommended, life-changing. And when I married Ray, I actually had a, a bit of a nasty um, illness. And um, it, it was horrible. And so I thought, OK, I'm, I'm going to test this out. I want to know if it works. And um, I did my prayer jog around the field at that time in Catfield, and I thanked God for that illness. And it was through gritted teeth. I think sometimes forgiveness can be like that, through gritted teeth, but in obedience you do it. And um, the tears came, and I realized, I had a revelation, that giving thanks, not only in all circumstances, but for all circumstances, is a sacrifice of praise, yes, but it surrenders everything to God and it confesses and declares that God is above all. You thank him for everything. It gives him the ability to come into that situation and change it. And I was healed. Fantastic. Not taking offense. Well, I took offense. I was the world's best complainer. And uh, I read a book by John Bevere. Uh, we started School of Prophets. The leaders there said, oh, yes, all bait of Satan. You must read that. Read it. Oh, life-changing. So I, do, I try very hard not to take offense anymore. Learning scripture. Now, I found it very hard when Billy Graham came. They said, do learn scriptures. Oh, that's so hard. I, and I just thought, I can't do it. It's too difficult. But... The Lord challenged me with it. And when you read a scripture in your head, it's lovely. When you read a scripture aloud, it's awesome. But when you learn scripture, it changes you on the inside out. And so I learned all sorts of scriptures. Psalm 91, Isaiah 61, lots of Psalms, Ezekiel 1, oh, and they've changed my life because it makes you realize that everything connects to everything else. And it's very helpful when you start to minister to people because you can minister a scripture. Psalm 23 is ideal. And we've used that on a number of occasions. Imagine you are in Psalm 23 and it, God comes to you in that scripture, in those quiet waters, green pastures, with the enemy around you, better feast, a beautiful feast set before you. 
School of Prophecy, we began and um, we were doing healing rooms and so I didn't know I was prophetic, I wouldn't have called myself prophetic, although of course I think we all are, we hear from God in all sorts of ways, that is prophetic. And I started to grow in that and actually have a prophetic word for Beacon, which hasn't been weighed yet, I haven't even shown it to the leadership, but that is on its way. So we'll see what that's like. Um, I learned to bear with others. Um, much like once you stop taking offence, the next thing is really um, to accept that we're all on a journey, we're all at different stages, um, and you just have to love people through their difficulties. And the cross of leadership is hard. Um, you know, you can love on someone and love on someone and love on someone and still be surprised by being bitten by that same person. <laughs> but you just have to carry on. It's just being obedient and love. We learned how to do a crafted prayer. There's no time. I would love to speak my crafted prayer over you. It's awesome. I recommend you do one. Perhaps we need to do some teaching on it. But it's a string of my crafted prayers, a string of 24 um, of my most meaningful, really, that God has put on my heart, scriptures, and I say them every day. Sometimes for me, sometimes for other people, sometimes for groups of people. And it helps me to stand on the word which I didn't do when I was in my church in London. I didn't know that God says, well, I knew God said, I'm not sure I quite believe that every word of God was God breathed. I do now. If it says in the Bible one thing, you stand on it. You stand on it no matter what. That's been huge. And my healing journey has come on wonderfully. So with the Vineyard Church in London, I did healing on the street. So I prayed for Manasseh. I joined a prayer ministry group at um, St. Stephen's. I joined healing on the streets with the Vineyard Church and then healing rooms with Ray. And that has been awesome. And we've traveled all over Europe with that. But intercession, we, in COVID, we learned about how to pray with God in the spirit. And that has been awesome. And we have seen massive things change in this church through intercession. I'm going to finish. Jonathan Comnath, in his book, The Power Partnership, says, ultimately, faith is a choice to believe what God has said. And to believe that above what human beings' circumstances or feelings say. And that's what I'm growing into. Praise God. I'm sorry to keep you. <laughs> <laughs>